Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, <laughs> happy uh, holidays to everybody who has been celebrating. Um, this podcast, uh, we're assuming, is going to come out right around New Year, and today we're going to be talking about a holiday you may not know about, but you probably want to know about. It's called the Feast of Fools. Yes. Yes, the holiday that you probably do know about is, of course, New Year's. <laughs> Hard to miss. Right. It's a holiday we celebrate, still. Yeah. Um, probably, except if we've talked about it before on this podcast, which I think we have occasionally, um, you might not think of it as also the Feast of the Circumcision, which is what it is. Um, <laughs> yes. Because it is a week after Christmas, and that's how that works in Judaism. Mm-hmm. So that is why it maintains its status as an important holiday, um, even when it's not New Year's, which we had talked about, right? It's not always actually the New Year in the Middle Ages. Right. Um, but it is always an important feast. So it's the Feast of the circum Circumcision. Um, <laughs> Time is totally arbitrary, so you can really start your year whenever. Yes, it turns out like March 1st, for yeah. example. I think I'll start mine in April 2022. Yeah. That'll be good. Yes, exactly. I'll yep. be ready. I know. We've kind of had one really long year. Yeah. Um, since March almost two, 2020. Two really long years. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> yes. But the sort of interesting aspect of um, what is also the 1st of January, of course, and the 1st is on the Roman calendar, the Calends. Mm -hmm. So we also know, for example... And we probably all know the Ides of March, I'm guessing. <laughs> Beware. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we, we all kind of know the Ides of March because of Caesar, of course, famously. Um, but the Ides really just meant the day of the month. It was like the 15th or the 13th. Um, so you have like the Calends, the Knowns, the Ides. And you would say how many days before or after the Knowns or Calends or Ides. Mm-hmm. It was, and this would tell you, like, what day in the month it was, basically. Okay. <laughs> you know. Um, so, the Calends, the 1st of January. So, the Calends of January. Um, this was frequently the New Year, but even if it wasn't, it is the Calends. So, it does get celebrated. Um, and we talked in a previous episode about tricks, I think. Um and the ways in which the tricks of things like trick or treating in Halloween um, and sort of of this time of year, the question of whether or not they trace back to pagan origins of some kind. And the answer is that they kind of probably don't. But <laughs> um, <laughs> there is this really interesting aspect that the Kellens were absolutely celebrated as a festival. And they were very festive. Hmm. <laughs> so lots of things happened. Um, this was but like we talked every month. Hmm? They would just have a party on the first of the month. No, no. We are talking about of January oh, specifically. specifically January. Okay. Yeah. Because for the Romans, it was the new year. Yeah. Um, which is presumably why, of course, you get January for Janus. Janus. Yeah. Yeah. Who looks forward and backward over the year. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So um, the sense of the new year, you have a huge festival, of course, you know, as yeah. we do today. I mean, New of Year's course. is always a big thing. Um, but the interesting question is, to what extent the Kalins continue to be celebrated? Ultimately, there's pretty clearly some syncretism that goes on. Because, obviously, as Christianity takes over in kind of the 400s, 500s mm-hmm. um, in Europe, then there are, we've talked before, right? There are a lot of things that where there's potential syncretism, right? Where there's a kind of melding of what has been pagan custom with what is now Christian yeah. custom. The interesting thing is that a lot of the stuff that was called pagan, this is something what we, this is sort of where we left off last time, I think. A lot of the stuff that was sort of called pagan about Callan's celebrations may not have been pagan, which is to say at least that it may not have been part of pagan Callan celebrations. And by pagan, we mean Roman. Um, so that Roman celebrations of the Callans, it is a big festival, certainly. Um, and there was potentially a sort of relaxing of rules and hierarchy. So we talked a bit about like Bactine and ideas of carnival um, and topsy-turvydom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a little bit of that, but only a tiny bit. Um, and so the New Year's celebration, it went on for a few days. So, you know, even like January 2nd, January 3rd. Um, and there could be a little bit of a relaxing of rules and hierarchy where like masters and their servants might, you know, play dice together or something. Okay. <laughs> Um, so a little bit of that existed, but it did not necessarily have, you know, it was a big party. Lots of stuff happened, but nothing that was necessarily somehow specifically pagan in ways that later celebrations of the Kalans, um took out a lot of things that were called pagan, but may not have been. Ah. Um, and so some of these things include, for example, um, masking. So this is sort of where we left off last time is the discussion of masking and the fact that Kalin's festivals during Christianity. So once we hit like the 400s um, and thereafter, you start to have evidence of masking celebrations where um, on the Kalin's. So, you know, for the sort of first of January, the, which is now the Feast of the Circumcision. Right. Um, you have revelers <laughs> who are wearing masks that uh, usually symbolize a variety of things, um, potentially animals, um, and they might be cross-dressing, which in this case tends to mean men dressed as women. Um, There is mocking of the powerful, Mm -hmm. um, and also uh, (laughs) door-to-door carousing, I guess (laughs) we could say. (laughs) Um, So these groups of maskers, right, um, who eventually, of course, much later were we'd call mummers, um, sort of dancing, singing, carousing door to door, um, and getting, you know, donations <laughs> for singing or, you know, just showing up for the season or things like this. Sure. Right. Like lost sailing. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so there's this sort of interesting thing. And I think we mentioned Meg Toycross and Sarah Carpenter, who wrote their book, Masks and masking in medieval and early Tudor England. Um, and they actually do talk about some early, um, sort of the early antecedents of what happens in Tudor England. Um, very early antecedents, which in this case would include Callan's revelry. Um, 
And they sort of, they argue that potentially you actually have clearly Christian revelers at this point, right? They're celebrating the Feast of the Circumcision. Um, but there is a little bit of syncretism, right? Because, of course, the sort of question is, why would you... It is a huge festival, the Feast of the Circumcision. This is a big deal in Christianity. It's the first time that Jesus sheds his blood for humanity, right? The whole point is that he comes down to shed his blood to save everyone. This is the point of the Eucharist, obviously. Right. Um, so the the drop of blood when you circumcise, so in Judaism, when a boy is circumcised, there is supposed to be a drop of blood. Mm-hmm. This is a whole other issue, but <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Um, so there is supposed to be a drop of blood, and so this would be the first blood that he shed for humanity. So it is a big festival. It is a big deal. But the fact that clearly there is some syncretism of these revelries with the Roman Calends revelries, right? But Toy Cross and Carpenter argue that potentially um, what you have now is really sort of fully Christian revelers who are kind of taking the opportunity that the Calends has always offered for revelry um, to have a lot of fun, do a lot of things that was never done on the Calends before, right? Because mm-hmm. now you really do have just Christian revelers. Um, and one of the things they might be doing is disguising as like animals and things that they think of as pagan, right? As a way of kind of um, maybe taking away its power, um, or kind of the way we do on Halloween, right? Where you dress up kind of as the dead to scare them or to, um, you know, be a little topsy turvy, right? This is a day where you can cross those liminal boundaries, right? There's something kind of funny, scary about you know wearing a mask or. Pretending to be someone else. Yeah, exactly. Um, So that there's sort of interesting way in which um, that maybe, like potentially what you have here are Christian revelers doing this um, really as a way of kind of taking the power away from paganism, maybe sort of mocking paganism, um, or just playing with kind Mm -hmm. of a power that they think of as pagan, even though this is not a pagan tradition to mask at the Calends, right? But that because, you know, it is now a f- Christian festival, it's an honor of Christ, it's an honor of what he did, that you're sort of playing with this idea of this pagan festival, but now turning it upside down as a way to honor Christ. Right. Um, so that means that there there is this really interesting way in which, <laughs> uh, right, you get masking and door-to-door visits, um, which happens sort of throughout this season, which mm-hmm. we've talked about, right? Of course, there's, you know, the Christmas season, um, this which this is part of, New Year's, um, or the Feast of the Circumcision. But this sort of interesting way in which it's not pagan, it it might think <laughs> it, like the people celebrating it might think of it as having pagan origins, but really at this point it doesn't anymore. Right. So it could um, kind of be like using paganism as an excuse to... I don't know, push the boundaries of what would be conceived of as proper in current society, sort of as like, yeah, why are you doing that? Oh, people have always done this, you know, goes, Mm -hmm. so goes way back. Where have you been? Just tradition. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Except what you're doing now, of course, yeah, is sort of playing with these boundaries of um, that liminal space between kind of Christianity and paganism, Mm -hmm. right? But now you're really on the other side. Um, so we talked a lot about last time, sort of carnival, 
does it really explode boundaries or does it maintain boundaries? Um, and here you're really kind of maintaining them by playing with this liminal space. But of course, you're never really crossing into dangerous territory. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's this really interesting moment because um, there really has been a sense, like some people really did look back at this and be like, oh, this is pagan ritual that, you know, was continued into Christian ceremonies. And that's not necessarily what's going on at all. A lot of this stuff doesn't show up until until Christianity, mm-hmm. right? So the masking, the cross-dressing, that stuff so shows up really with um, with the Christian festival. Um other interesting things. One of the so you get a lot of animal masks, but especially like the stag. The stag is a big one. Okay. Um, you do definitely get the house to house visits, um, and you do get this sort of interesting. Um, you know, sometimes there are people trying to forbid some of this stuff. <laughs> of course, there are always people trying to forbid it, right? Um, and say like you know, people need to stop doing this, mm-hmm. stop wearing masks and dressing up and blah, blah, blah. Um, and this is where you get people calling it pagan. Yeah. Right? Even though it, it isn't necessarily, right? But that's an easy way to try to shut it down. Kids these <laughs> days. Ah, with their... Exactly. Masking yes. and their guising and their... Yes. Yeah. Uh, and one of the other sort of funny things is that one of the, one of the things that is frequently sort of talk about is forbidden along with the masking is the Mm cross-dressing. But of course, frequently the reason men are cross-dressing as women is because women aren't necessarily allowed to participate Mm. in ways that can be very Christian. Not obviously that pagans didn't also (laughs) keep women from doing stuff, but um, sometimes this is like a specifically sort of Christian prohibition against women participating in things. So men then play women, mm-hmm. which you get throughout like liturgical and Latin drama. Sure. Where priests, for example, are playing Mary, right? All of the Marys. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so there's this really interesting way in which, you know, you will point your finger and be like, pagan, but maybe not. Right. Um, yeah. So what we had also talked about last time um, was that... <laughs> The sort of interesting element of the Feast of the Circumcision taking on some of these elements from Kalends, um, there's actually a sort of great image of masking um, that we tagged um, in a previous episode, uh, episode 18, note 10, I believe, um, which is this great, it's a Bodleian manuscript, uh, 264, I think, uh, and the page is... 21 verso. Um, and it's got this very famous sort of mumming marginalia, mm-hmm. basically. Um, pretty clearly shows mummers, presumably. Um, and there's been some suggestion that these are maskers dressed up maybe for calends, um, because they are specifically wearing animal Aha. masks. Okay. Yeah. So that they might actually be um, masking for calends. Mm-hmm. Um, so the sort of interesting question is, where does it go from here? Right? So New Year's, um, it's interesting because today, of course, we celebrate New Year's, obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> as New Year's. Um, and we consider it, I think, the like the secular New Year's, right? Right. 
January 1st is a secular New Year's, and other cultures, like, definitely have other New Year's's, mm-hmm. but that's kind of the global secular New Year's. Right. Um, but I, it's funny that we... Hmm? Yeah, I mean, like, there's Chinese New Year, but right, that's not global, so... and Right. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah, but, like, yeah, Lunar New Year, um, Jewish New Year, right? Mm-hmm. Definitely other cultures, like, have their own <laughs> years There's and dating systems. There's a ton of, of New yeah. Year's. You could celebrate yeah. New Year's from January until pretty much May if you really wanted. There's yeah. a lot. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, of course, the Jewish New Year's for, is in the fall. Oh, yeah. You keep just keep, go, <laughs> keep it going. Like I said, yeah. time is arbitrary. Yep. Start a new um, year every few months. Yes. Which I think, like, the, the description always, or the description, the um, kind of reasoning that I always heard for um, Jewish New Year being in the fall is that the whole point, not unlike really why New Year's might be in January, mm-hmm. or, you know, in the middle of winter, um, is because of this idea that you celebrate this in the optimism that that spring will come, basically. Mm. Right? Interesting. <laughs> it's like you celebrate when everything's dying or dead. Because you're optimistic, just like, you know, the assumption that the sun will rise tomorrow. Yeah. The assumption you will get a spring. (laughs) Um, I feel like my upbringing, Jewish New Year was always tied to the new school year. Yes, which is also funny, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. now that I think about it, they're not really related Mm -hmm. except for, like, honey. Right. Um... That, or so I was told that there was a practice of putting honey on children's slates back when people wrote on slates to Ooh, that's fun. teach them that learning is sweet. And now awesome. as the parent of a four year old, I just shudder at the amount of stickiness. Like yes. <laughs> nobody needs nobody needs to know that learning is sweet in this visceral way. Like that's too much right. stickiness. I just, Oh, I guess like gross. children are sticky anyway, so yeah, it's so horrible. <laughs> um, but it's gonna happen no matter what. Yeah. yeah. But the point for for non Jewish listeners is that you celebrate Jewish New Year by eating apples and honey and yes. honey bread, um, honey right. cake. So um, a sweet New Year. Yeah. Yeah. So there was that connection, but yeah, there's usually food involved, right? Lunar yeah. Year, New Year absolutely has food involved. Yeah. Yeah. And it's usually, right, you things have things that are round because they symbolize the cycle of the year and mm-hmm. things that are sweet because you, yes, you yeah. have good luck. In and, Vietnam, at yeah. Tet, it's very popular to buy dried fruit because mm-hmm. it's super, super sweet. You can get everything like dried pineapple, dried lotus root. Um, yes, you know, that's my favorite. Yeah. Great stuff. Yay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. In Thailand, they um, shoot each other with super soakers. But there you are. Yeah. You know. That takes I mean, care of the stickiness, I guess. Yes. Also, water, of course, is purifying, right? Yes. Um, but there is this sort of interesting way in which we do not think... I mean, specifically, I think we sort of... So, therefore, January 1st has become a sort of the secular New Year. We do not think of it as a religious holiday. Um, there certainly are people, obviously, who still celebrate it as the Feast of the Circumcision, but we do not think mm-hmm. of it that way as a culture, right? It feels like um, I felt like I was fairly, I don't know, like I knew quite a bit about other religions' observances, and I was not aware that it was the Feast of the Circumcision. Right. So, Which is also even funnier, because of course obscure. you'd think like someone who is Jewish would 
be more likely maybe to recognize that even if they weren't Christian, yeah, right? I guess so. <laughs> um, but it wouldn't necessarily occur to one because mm-hmm. one forgets sometimes that Jesus was in fact Jewish. Um, but like that, that is when he would have been mm-hmm. circumcised. If he was actually born on the 25th, this is when he would have been circumcised. Right. right. People don't um, claim him for the tribe the way they do, like, you know, Sammy Koufax or someone. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you know. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. It's a sort of, you know, it's, but it is one of those interesting things where, um, what was the sort of huge deal isn't quite in the same way, right? And it's very different from the fact that, like, Christmas, of course, is a religious holiday that has become very much a sort of, it's not secular, but in some ways, right? It's an overpoweringly dominant economic holiday as well. Yes. <laughs> right? Um, this did not happen to New Year's, right? New Year's is pretty definitely secular. Circumcision really doesn't come into it so much mm-hmm. these days. Um, and I think it might seem weird to us, perhaps, we're going to talk about a lot of things that happened, but the ways in which this was celebrated, um, which is to say, again, like that Halloween, I think retroactively, because of the way it exists in the United States, if you if you live anywhere else in the world, I don't think Halloween is as obvious. Mm-hmm. But if you live in the United States, um, then it seems just inevitable that Halloween would have become a holiday where you have giant revelry and masking and tricks and treats and house to house and all the stuff we do, right? When in fact, that used to be so much more spread out throughout the season, it used to be far more attached to certain other holidays, really, mm-hmm. like Christmas. And then, of course, for those who have heard of things like the 12 Days of Christmas or Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, the entire Christmas season, right? Right. The 12 Days of Christmas starts... At Christmas, right? And then you count. This is the theory. Yes. Yeah. So usually that means that the, that 12th night is January 5th. Mm. (laughs) This is the theory. Um, however, sometimes people count it just differently so that January 6th becomes the 12th night. But usually January 5th is 12th night. And January 6th is the Feast of the Epiphany. Hmm. Um, and this is when the wise men... Oh, yeah, that's why you make a king cake, right? The baby yes. in it and... Uh, yes. Yes. Different, slightly different from the king cakes you make at Mardi Gras, which... Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the thing, right? Christ is always the king. It's just for different reasons. <laughs> yes. So this is the baby who is king. Yes, so this is where we get into the next section of this interesting series of events that happen at this time of year, <laughs> traditionally, and by traditionally I mean kind of like throughout the Middle Ages. Um, <laughs> so moving from Calends originally, which is Roman, which stays through Christianity, which then becomes a very Christian kind of Feast of the Circumcision, but weird masking type of event, you know, not weird, but much more sort of Halloween-y, festival-y type of event, right? Masking and mumming and and tricking and treating and all of these things get built into it mm-hmm. as a big festival um, because you are celebrating, like I said, the sort of first blood that he shed and all of this stuff. Um, also, of course, you are part of this Christmas season, mm-hmm. which starts with the birth of the king, right? <laughs> and ends with the epiphany when the wise men 
recognize him, basically, <laughs> and give him gifts that are, of course, symbolic of his kingship and his, you know, divinity and the fact that he's going to die, basically. Depending on how you read these gifts, but that tends to be the, the general interpretation. Um, which is why they're so weird, by the way. <laughs> anyway. Oh, okay. um, you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, gold, because right, he's a king. Frankincense, um, you know, like you would sense in a church. So this is his recognizing his um, divinity, basically. Mm -hmm. And myrrh is what you, that's for last rites. Oh. Right, I the oil for last rites. know that. Yeah, this okay. is the theory. I mean, you know, who is to say? It's just one basic interpretation. It's a heck of a thing to bring to a baby. I know. We could, we've talked about it, I think, before, yes. but there could, we could probably do a whole episode on interpretations of just those gifts. Okay. But <laughs> that is one of the basic interpretations. So anyway. I'm sure there um, have been many articles written that people, yes. like, go to Google Scholar, guys. Just. Right. <laughs> Check it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Also a good point to mention, of course, that one of the wise men, it tends to be African, mm -hmm. black. Um, and so it's also this sort of interesting reminder of these three, right, where they come from. We've also talked about them before that they might have, well, that they are sort of originally depicted with these hats that eventually become sort of viewed as the Jewish hat. Mm -hmm. Um, so there are a lot of interesting things about this moment that you also start to get a sense of kind of the ways in which diversity, <laughs> the pros and cons of diversity working its way into Christian iconography and representation. Mm -hmm. In the West. Um, but this is, so this is this whole season, right? So we start with the birth, we move through New Year's, and we finally get to like Twelfth Night and then Epiphany. So this whole season is full of all these great moments to think about interesting things like, um, first of all, having a good party at New Year's, which is now the Feast of the Circumcision. But secondly, um, the birth of a king who's a baby, right? This is very topsy-turvy. Mm-hmm. Because kings are usually adult men. <laughs> and famously, of course, in the Bible, you've got Herod. Ah, uh, yes. Who is the king, right? Who hears that a more kingly king is being born. And therefore, he wants to stop this. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, so it's sort of tailor-made for interesting festivities dealing with the idea of a baby as king and the man, you know, the tyrant who's king, Herod, as being the not real king. Right. So this whole sense of kind of topsy-turvydom. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, as we move a little bit through the season, um, we do start to get things. First of all, um, there are places. So in Byzantium, for example, the Byzantine Empire, which, of course, is Christian, um, but, you know, centered around, like, Constantinople, of course. Um, you sometimes get Kalen's masquerades that sort of, you know, are on Kalen's, but at this point it's the Feast of the Circumcision. Um, you can get masquerades, like, inside the church sometimes, like okay. in the 1100s, um, with the clergy participating. Hmm. Um, so you do start to get a level of festival that isn't just the people, right? Where the church also recognizes that, you know, the more sort of official feasts you have, the better in some ways, right? <laughs> the more people come to church, butts in seats, right? Um, so you, but that means you need to be able to 
put on a show or at least have festivities that will rival the ones people might be doing themselves in the streets. Mm-hmm. Right. So masquerading in the church, clergy participating um, happens like um, in Byzantium, at least. Um, as we move through what happens in Europe more, particularly starting sort of maybe in Germany in the 10 hundreds and spreading to, for example, Italy, which borders the German-speaking areas. So when I say Germany, I mean German-speaking areas. And by Italy, of course, I mean Italian-speaking areas, which border <laughs> German-speaking areas. Right. Um, also, French-speaking areas, like places that are now Belgium and France and Switzerland, which speaks all of these languages. <laughs> um, so anyway, so and of course, German-speaking would include Austria as well, right? So... Um, so German speaking, so all of these areas, right, sort of maybe starting in German speaking areas, but anyway, spreading sort of throughout, we might, you know, Italian and French speaking areas, um, you start to have games surrounding Herod, right? Okay. Um, because, you know, sort of obviously, he's this great villain, mm-hmm. right? Um, he's this evil tyrant who is after this baby, who is gonna topple him, yes. you know? Um, and eventually we get the slaughter of the innocents, famously. Um, I mean, not eventually, like, that's what happens. <laughs> um, and so, right, because he's trying to kill all the male children who might be the king. This is reminiscent, of course, of previous attempts at such things, like <laughs> by Pharaoh in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, type. So, Anti-type. Yes. Um, I just so this say, idea, right, you have got this... Hmm? Herod is in the book I, Claudius by Robert Graves. Uh-huh. Um, and he's comes off as like kind of a cool guy, at least in the beginning of it. And then yes. I found out about this slaughter of innocence thing, and I was like, wow, he wasn't actually that cool at all. Yes, well, <laughs> to be fair, there's no actual... I mean, it never really happened, probably. Oh, well. <laughs> there's no actual evidence that it ever happened. To be or anything fair, close like, to it. probably most of I, Claudius didn't necessarily happen. Didn't happen. Or right. it didn't happen that way. Like, obviously, there were some actual right. people in there, but... Yes. Right. Well, I mean, you know, as always, like, obviously, there was a Claudius. I mean, there mm-hmm. was a Herod. Yeah. But, yeah, he didn't... I mean, obviously, he didn't... I shouldn't say obviously, of course, but there is no historical evidence at all for him having slaughtered any children, probably because there's no evidence of him having known any prophecy about Jesus, mm-hmm. because, of course, you know, uh, a lot of it was written after Jesus manifested right. <laughs> as a tremendous leader. And so the, you know, backdating it to a prophecy is always great. Mm-hmm. Or I guess it's not a prophecy, really. It's a, you know, it's the star, obviously, to an astrological event, right? right? You can sort of be like, there was this astrological event. What did it mean? Aha! Jesus was born around that time, right? Aha. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so post hoc Right. Yes. Yeah. So, um, it's so it's becomes one of those things where yes, Herod did not do this because he didn't know about it, and also he didn't anyway. Yeah. Also, it would have been very difficult. You can't really go around slaughtering all the male children. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. It's a good way to lose the support (laughs) of the people that you govern for sure. Yes. Generally speaking, for sure. Yeah. Um, now, was he sort of in bed with the Romans and all that stuff? I mean, yeah. Like, so there's a lot of politics involved. I'm not saying he was a great guy. I'm not saying he was a terrible guy, though. He's not the villain necessarily he's portrayed as being, of course. Um, but et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So um, anyways, <laughs> here we are. At, you know, so we're talking him. Obviously, this is how he is portrayed in the Bible, um, which is as 
a definite villain and a tyrant in the best, you know, tradition of tyrants, of course, right? Um, and there are lots of great tyrants in the Bible. You know, it's worth pointing out. Like, he's not alone. There are plenty of others who, you know, do terrible things at various points. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pharaoh, right? Anyway, so there are lots of them. But here we have Herod. Um, so, yeah, he manifests as this great villain. Um, so what starts to happen is he becomes portrayed slowly, I mean, as a great villain, basically, right? So you have a few different ways in which he starts to enter the festivities, the festivities of the season. Um, one of them is through, um, plays, Latin plays, mm-hmm. um, that are part of the liturgy frequently, which is to say that they will get sort of stuffed in between certain aspects of the liturgy and the mass and so on, right? So, you know, the, if you are a monk <laughs> or a nun, um, you celebrate all the liturgical hours, so all day long you have different things that you, you know, have to do and say and so on. Um, and during this season, there are plays of that deal with Herod that get popped into some of this stuff. Um, so one of the early ones, circa 1070, we're going to say, um, is Freising's um, play of the star, the star being, of course, the star of Bethlehem, right? <laughs> um, or the office of the star is the Latin, but it's a, you know, it's a play. Um, and Herod rages in this play. So this is an early, one of the early instances of him raging the way he is then later known to do. Verb is so frequently connected with him. Yes. Most other people do not rage unless it is road raging, I think. Right. (laughs) No, but I mean, tyrants rage, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and Herod is kind of the early version of this type of character. Um, not that they don't exist earlier, of course, but, you know, when it comes to kind of... Um, yeah, he's sort of... Western drama. Iconic, in a way. Yes. You know, because and even to the point that Shakespeare has Hamlet mention him, shows sort of how much he continued to exist in popular memory, mm-hmm. even after a lot of those plays are no longer being done. Mm-hmm. Right, for Hamlet to say, like, an out Herod's Herod. Um, yeah, it's just sort of a great reminder of how in that had become in the popular imagination. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so Herod, so this is one um, where Herod, Herod rages, as I said, that's an early one. Um, and there is a really, so that's a play, right? There's another fantastic um, scenario from, from Padua, Padua, so now in Italy, um, in the 13th century, um, this isn't a scripted play, but it is clearly part of, basically part of the liturgy. It's an interruption in the liturgy, but a clearly intended interruption <laughs> in the liturgy. And what happens is, all right, during Matins on the Feast of Epiphany, mm-hmm. of course, right? Um, clerics, so, you know, clergy, representing King Herod and his court, invade the cathedral. Uh, Herod climbs into the pulpit, hurls a wooden spear into the choir, angrily reads the ninth lesson. His followers set about beating the bishop, canons, choristers, and men and women standing in the nave with inflated bladders. (laughs) Yes. So, like, you know, whoopee cushions, but actual bladders. Okay. Yeah. They didn't have, you know, fake (laughs) bladders back then. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Um... 
Yeah. So instructions for this representation of Herod are found in a 13th century ordinal that's preserved oh. in a cathedral library. Um, it's clearly part of the cathedral celebration of Epiphany, mm -hmm. right? So this is a scripted intrusion where clerics who are, you know, we don't know how much costumes were part of it, but they're clearly costumed enough that they're recognizable, right, right as Herod in his court. And he has props, right? He has like a wooden spear, right? So he, so they invade, you know, you can imagine, right? The door is open, they come rushing in, you know, like a fake army, but yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and so they invade and they, you know, he hurls his spear into the choir, um, specified wooden, right? So a prop spear, but nonetheless, right? He angrily reads the lesson, which is hilarious because um, it's also sort of a reminder of the ways in which this is clearly an accepted part of the <laughs> process <Yeah. laughs> of what's going on, right? Um, and then they go about beating, you know, everyone else who's there with inflated bladders. Um, and this is a great thing because this is something that could happen at, you know, earlier like Callan's and Feast of the Circumcision festivities. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of unclear. It's it's one of the things that sort of happened as kind of topsy-turvy festival trick-or-treat type of things, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, beating people <laughs> with inflated bladders. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, like balloons, right? Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so this is a great sort of example of uh, the sorts of, right, this is tied to this season, right? So Herod, you might have a play about him that's that's more of a scripted play, right, where he rages and does stuff. Um, or you might have this kind of clearly some, somewhat improv mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, version of Herod, right? Um, but either way, right, this says that this clearly sort of, it spreads throughout this whole area, um, you know, Western Europe, basically, where you have these sort of Herod games, Herod plays, um, based around this season. I like this. I, it reminds me of, like, when they get Mark Twain impersonators to come in and, like, give a speech <laughs> like they're pretending to be Mark Twain. <laughs> yes. But it would be more like... You're sitting in class and a Mark Twain impersonator comes in and teaches you, you know, like, your multiplication tables or something. Like, whatever yes. you were already doing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And so it's part of what's going on, but it's also a way of kind of celebrating the spirit of the season, right? Yeah. Um, it is absolutely it is wonderfully <laughs> kind of topsy-turvy and... Yeah. Um, so, Herod games are one thing that shows up. Um, another thing that randomly shows up in some French churches and cathedrals, um, as part of December games or sometimes Easter games. Um, so this is mentioned by Max Harris in Sacred Folly, which is a book that's sort of entirely devoted to all this stuff. Um, is, so again, this is sort of specifically French, but, um, a sort of, Probably something that was basically a liturgical dance that included a ball. Okay. Like a, like a soccer ball. <laughs> like it's right. not a soccer ball because soccer doesn't exist, but you know what? Like a ball, <laughs> that type of ball. Okay. <laughs> a game ball, mm -hmm. right? Um, that was like thrown back and forth, presumably okay. sort of as part of this dance. Um, why did this happen? How many places did this happen? Unclear. 
Um, but it's just another one of those reminders that, like, this was a weird season of stuff that could happen. <laughs> like, um, the sorts of games that could happen that might turn out to be part of part of the ceremony. I um, feel like I remember um, hearing about, in some of the cathedrals that had, like, large labyrinths on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those who haven't seen these, it's basically like a big maze, but it's not walls in the sense it's not like labyrinth in the sense of the film labyrinth it's like a maze it's a painted pattern on the, on the floor yeah yeah that you walk yeah generally you walk it as some sort of meditation exercise but i feel like i saw pamphlets that were like the people would like stand around the outside and the priest would like throw balls to them maybe balls of wool <sighs> Maybe yes, that's so, the detail I added in my head because of no, you know, the Minotaur. This is there is have this, been theories uh, about that. It's not clear that that is actually true. Oh, there have been theories that the labyrinths were part of this game. Okay, it's not clear that they were actually. Okay, but that's a theory someone came up with at some point. Yeah. Okay. Um, cool. Cool, yeah, which cool. is interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, they seem more to have been med- meditative. There are, there's a lot that's been written about them. Like, what really were they? Why did they exist? Why did people do them? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's some wonderful famous ones and they're, it's really cool. Yeah, people they're still usually do like them, their, which is a little weird. Mm-hmm. Well, not, like, not weird, but, um, yeah, it's kind of cool that it's like some weird, long, tra- continuous tradition or something, but. Yeah. Um, and you can see some of the medieval ones. They're like, they're usually inlaid yeah. into the floor, right? So yeah. it's a pattern that's inlaid in the floor. Um, and there were a lot of theories, like, was it kind of like going on pilgrimage? Was it just meditative? Was it, you know, there are a lot of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, this dance was one of them. It probably wasn't actually connected to the labyrinth again. But but it is a demonstration, right, that that idea that the ball throwing kind of persisted, right? Yeah. And it's just, like, trying to make sense of it. Because from our vantage point today, the fact that, like, clergy might sort of dance around in a circle or something and throw a ball to each other, it's not at all clear why that would happen. Right. (laughs) So, um, you know, it's clearly kind of game, but, like, what is the point? We don't know. We do not know. Right? The Herod games, there's a clear point. You know, this type of game, there is not a clear point. But we know what happened. Well, so there there's a book called uh, Nine Princes in Amber by Roger Zelazny, where they have to basically walk a labyrinth in order to get their magic powers. It's yeah. all like super complicated and mystical. So maybe that's maybe that's it. I don't yeah, know. I mean, <laughs> to get their magic powers back. Yeah. I feel like they would definitely have called that pagan. Um, pretty, but, pretty hard pagan. But yeah. Yes. OK, so here's another really cool thing that happened. Um, so, uh, in Beauvais, as part of their Feast of Fools, um, we're now going to move on to the Feast of Fools. So, this is sort of where we've been going. Um, the Feast of Fools is, we mentioned it last time, we're coming back to it, hugely, hugely misunderstood, probably. (laughs) So, probably hugely, hugely misunderstood. Okay. Um, so... (laughs) Um, last time I think I read, and I'll just recap a tiny bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the sort of opening quote from Max Harris's Sacred Folly. He quotes this letter that the Faculty uh, of Theology from the University of Paris issued to France as a whole um, on the 12th of March, 1445. 
um, and they wrote <laughs> uh, that they were compelled to describe how much uh, so, quote, how much we abhor and how much we execrate a certain kind of ritual merriment, which is called by its organizers the Feast of Fools. Um, and then they they insist that it's based on the ancient pagan Kalins rituals, and that now it's called the Feast of Fools, and that it survived, you know, mm-hmm. it used to be, of course, Greek and Roman New Year, and it survived for centuries, like, under cover of Christian feasts, like, of the Nativity. Um, and that now it's being still being celebrated during Christmas week, right, in churches and consecrated places and all this stuff. Um, and they have this sort of horrible thing where they're like, this is, this is what they think happens, is that priests and clerks may be seen wearing masks and monstrous visages. Um, they dance in the choir dressed as women, panders or minstrels. They sing wanton songs. They eat black puddings at the heart of the altar. Um, while the celebrant is saying mass, they play dice there. Okay, they run and leap through the church without a blush at their own shame. Um, finally, they drive about the town and its theaters in shabby traps and carts and rouse the laughter of their fellows with infamous performances. Okay, um, so this is what they thought of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tell us more and, of what you think, guys. Didn't Yes, and the thing is that this has frequently been taken as a kind of... Um, you know, er description of what the Feast of Fools was. Mm -hmm. So people are like, yes, this is what it was. And um, it was a festival of carnival, right? So it's a sort of satire, uh, mockery of the hierarchy. You would elect a bishop, you know, like Mm -hmm. a bishop of fools um, to mock the real bishop. And it was an inversion of hierarchy and topsy-turvydom. Um, and in fact, none of that really seems to have been true. And this is sort of the main argument of Max Harris's book, Sacred Folly. Um, and one of the interesting things, of course, is that we've seen, right, Callan's festivals did turn into kind of this sort of Feast of the Circumcision festivals where you did have masking and cross-dressing and these various things. Um, and that eventually some places bring some of this revelry sort of into a clerical context. Um, certainly then they start to do things like Herod, right? Create Herod games. And that is very much a clerical context, mm-hmm. right? Um, so the interesting thing is that the Feast of Fools actually seems to be very similar. <laughs> this is sort of Harris's argument, but it does seem to be mostly true, right? That the early Feast of Fools really is also liturgical. Mm-hmm. It's created by the clergy, it's sort of controlled by the clergy, and that it it might even sort of be, maybe along with the Herod Games, a kind of alternative to the external revelry of um, the Feast of the Circumcision. Um, So, the Feast of Fools... Um, sort of arises in the second half of the 12th century um, and encounters, it sort of encounters its opposition and gets shut down a few hundred years later. So kind of the first half of the 15th century. Oh, that's um, pretty recent. Yes, yeah, so there's this sort of interesting way in which um, it, right, it has its rise where it becomes part of the liturgy. It's sort of very clerical, um, and it exists that way for a while. And then, as with a number of things that the church sanctions, <laughs> this happens, you know, a lot. The church will sanction things for a while, um, particularly if it needs an alternative to things that people are doing outside the church. But then 
as that becomes less of a problem, it'll quash the thing, right? It'll sort of yeah. quash the alternative. Um, because that can start to seem potentially unruly, mm-hmm. right? If it's not in direct opposition to something else happening, it can start to seem um, like it's no longer needed and maybe is getting out of hand, mm-hmm. right? So it gets quashed from the inside. Um, so what happens with the Feast of Fools um, is that despite the fact that you get these, you know, kind of ridiculously terrible <laughs> descriptions of what's happening... It's not ever, there are no real descriptions of stuff like that happening that seem to be based on fact, I guess, mm-hmm. is sort of the point. Um, you do get some interesting things, though. So, for example, um, for one thing, the Feast of Fools is pretty much tied just to France. So while things like Herod Games happen sort of across Western Europe, Feast of Fools does not. Um, and you have some interesting moments, like uh, in Beauvais, um, their Feast of Fools... Which, by the way, Feast of Fools happens, it does happen on the Feast of the Circumcision, so this is a January 1st celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see why it could be sort of competing with um, external celebrations, right? Um, one of the things that happens is you start to get sort of elaborate liturgies written for the Feast of Circumcision. Um, and in Beauvais, <laughs> one of the things they do um, is bring a donkey into the church. Okay. Yes. Um, so it's also known as the Feast of the Ass. Um, <laughs> okay. And an ass, yes, an ass is led into the church um, in a, during a processional. Um, and this is, you know, it's part of the liturgy, essentially, right? Um, it's worth pointing out that bringing a live donkey into the church or near the church is not necessarily unusual. Um, so the Christmas play... From the Carmina Burana manuscript, mm-hmm. uh, the Benedict Baron manuscript, um, potentially brought a real donkey into the church. Sometimes you have like a fake donkey, um, but maybe, but perhaps a real donkey, like right, the, that you could bring into the church. What is it? The the palm the palm Sunday. donkey. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yes, yes. So Palm Sunday processions generally include a donkey. Sometimes a real one, frequently a fake one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of which we have talked before, and so I think we put some images yeah, up. That I think a donkey yes. with wheels is probably easier to control. Yes, Depending exactly. on how unruly your crowd is and how... Right. How your donkey feels yes. about the crowd. Exactly. Yeah. But um, obviously, right, yeah, donkeys are kind of very important. So um, there's the donkey, yes, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. So that, of course, is the Palm Sunday donkey. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason to have a donkey potentially in a Christmas play. So um, in this Christmas play, it's actually um, part of the story of um, Balaam, who has a donkey, who like stops short and won't go anywhere. Um, and he's like beating the donkey, but the donkey has seen an angel. And this oh. is why he won't go anywhere. Um, and so then, you know, Whatever. So then, the donkey can talk and explains what's going on, and then, he, and then you know his master Malam can see the angel and realizes what's happened and blah blah. Um, but this is this donkey is a really famous donkey. Mm-hmm. That donkey. Um, so, and it's it's this, but it's this interesting sort of reminder, right, of how donkeys have this weird connection to Christ. It's not really weird, but we might view it as weird today. But of course, the point is kind of 
they are this lowly animal, right? <laughs> Who are frequently thought of as like stubborn and all the rest of it. Yeah, I think they're actually quite donkey. intelligent. So, you know, they're, yeah. they're not ideal domesticated animals in that they do things that they want to do. Mm-hmm. Which- yeah, but also, right, they're not um, – the fact that Jesus rides a donkey instead of a horse, right? Mm-hmm. A noble knight, a king, whatever, would ride a charger, Sure. Right, a war horse. Um, and instead he comes riding in on a donkey. So it is part of that topsy-turvy representation, right? Mm-hmm. He is sort of the most noble, etc., but rides this lowly animal, right? Um, and the same thing is true of our famous donkey, <laughs> um, who stops and refuses to go, as donkeys sometimes do, but it turns out because he's seen an angel, right, um, which makes this donkey really famous, Um or this story really famous, but, um, you know, that, yeah, that the donkey has this sort of interesting connection to Jesus in this way, right? As being this kind of down to earth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a war horse, but important. Um, and of course, the whole, the, another thing that we might see in a Christmas play is that eventually, of course, like with Francis of Assisi, um, that donkeys are going to definitely be seen as one of the animals present at the nativity, mm-hmm. of course. Right. Um, so you might also see a donkey as part of that. Um, and frequently, you know, I think today, like in mangers, right, nativity scenes, you generally get a donkey. Yeah, a I, live thought, donkey, but. I thought there was some story that Jesus and Mary had been traveling with the donkey around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so that the donkey was basically like theirs. The, yeah, the donkey they've been transport. riding on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so donkeys have this sort of interesting importance, right? Um, so they get their own feast. Yes, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. but that's interesting, right? It is the Feast of the Circumcision, so you could view this donkey as, you know, as the donkey who was there at the Nativity. You could view this donkey as, you know, the Palm Sunday donkey. You can, you know, there's this sort of interesting connection there that you could view. Um, but Beauvais seems to be unusual in that it introduced a donkey to its feast of the circumcision, right? Mm -hmm. Donkeys were not uncommon in church festivals, but not necessarily as part of the feast of the circumcision. Right. But in Beauvais, it was. Um, And also interesting, um, there's a famous play (laughs) from Beauvais Cathedral um, that was also part of the Feast of Fools celebration, probably. Um, And that seems to be... One of the reasons it's been argued, <laughs> partly, that this, um, it's, there are a few reasons, but this is a play of Daniel, um, probably from about 1140, maybe a little bit later. Um, and this play has been argued that it was part of the Feast of Fool celebrations. Um, and one of the interesting things uh, Peter Dronke has suggested that um, the king um, Darius, or Darius, um, uses at one point this vernacular phrase that was also used in the Feast of Fools ceremony to drive the donkey through the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's actually talking to his courtiers. You know, he's like, get going to his courtiers. But the, he uses the same phrase that Beauvais also used when they were driving the donkey through the church as part of the same, probably the same feast day. Hmm. Um, so this sort of interesting connection, right? They have this, they have a Feast of Fools celebration with like processions and stuff where they drive the donkey through the church. And then they also have this play, which is sort of a little more formal. Um, 
but has this interesting tie, mm-hmm. right, in the language to something else that they do on the same day. Um, and in this case, right, the sort of interesting sense of theater as being part of this feast, right? Um, and, of course, theater is one of the things that, <laughs> um, you know, sometimes it's okay and sometimes it's not as okay. Right. Um, liturgical plays tend to be okay, but also there are iffy things going on. Um, not to say with liturgical drama, but just... It always depends on who's in charge. Yes. And what what their preferences yes. are. Uh, around the world, it seems yes, like. Yes, exactly. Um, and so one of the interesting things is that um, Innocent Third, for whatever reason... Um, here's probably here's these sort of false rumors about what's going on with the feast of fools in France and tries to shut it down. Um, and it's worth pointing out, of course, feast of fools. One of the, where the sort of term comes from is that a fool can be either someone who's ignorant and denies God. Right. So that's how we think of fool today. Right. Someone who's ignorant or of course, a fool sort of for God like St. Francis, for example, um, which is someone who would be humble, right? The sort of person who might mm-hmm. ride a donkey, but be chosen by God to fulfill a, you know, divine purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, this is in uh, Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians 4.10. Uh, we'll, we are fools for the sake of Christ. Um so this, so the Feast of Fools honors the lowly. Of course, that's the point, right? Again, just like the Feast of the Circumcision, the idea of, um, you know, the Herod games, the idea of the lowly, right? This boy born in the manger is, you know, the true king and the Messiah, etc. Right. Um, so there is this sort of interesting <laughs> um, fact that um, Innocent the Third ends up sort of for whatever reason, he writes um, this letter to an archbishop in Poland, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, stating that in- um, this is in 1207. Um, and he says, you know, sometimes theatrical games are performed in churches, um, and not only are monstrous masked spectacles introduced in the churches for the purpose of mockery, but in three feasts of the year, which immediately follow the birth of Christ – Deacons, priests, and subdeacons in turn presume to exercise their foolish mockeries and through the offensive ravings of their gestures make clerical glory vile in the sight of the people. Um, you should take care to eradicate from your churches the aforementioned custom or rather corruption of ludi, right, games, or potentially plays, um, that you may show yourselves to be zealous for divine worship and holy orders. Um, hmm. And it's... So he sent this to Poland, yes. though, not... Not to France. No, which seems weird because there's no evidence that the Feast of Fools necessarily happened in Poland. <laughs> um, and again, right, there's this weird problem because um, the big takeaway um, in 1230, so that was 1207 and 1234, um, it gets ex- excerpted in the decretals of Pope Gregory IX and thus becomes a sort of permanent part of canon law. Um, and in 1263, an explanatory gloss is added, um, clarifying that there is papal support for certain seasonal representations of the manger of the Lord, so nativity scenes, Herod, the Magi, okay. how Rachel wept for her children, 
right? Uh, so, such things that lead men to devotion rather than licentiousness. Um, so, <laughs> you know, okay. there, so there is um, a kind of caveat here, but there is this problem, right? That there's this long shadow thrown by mm-hmm. um, this fact, right? Um, and this specifically writes theatrical games that have been sort of, right. you know, <laughs> uh, potentially wiped out. Um, obviously, they aren't wiped out, but, you know, the caveat, yes, it's a caveat, but it's very specific things, right? So, Nativity, Herod, so he gets to stick around, right? The Magi, how Rachel up for children. But you'll notice, of course, some of the things we've talked about, like, no no mention that you can necessarily be bringing a donkey through your church. Um, right. No mention, interestingly, of, like, the play of Daniel, which is you know, presumably Daniel's fine. That's holy. This is a mm-hmm. Latin play. Um, but nonetheless, right, you can see how there's a sort of chill um, that he yeah. threw. And it's not so clear why. It's not clear. Um, but it is that reminder of that fear, right, that somehow that the clerical alternatives to what's going on in the streets is going to, um, you know, be equally rowdy or just as bad or something as what whatever else is happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see, like in France, you do have Feast of Fools and you have, but it's very much a sort of clerical um, exercise. And the big thing people know about the Feast of Fools generally is not that there is a liturgy attached to it or that things like the play of Daniel were probably attached to it, um, but that you had things like a boy bishop, right? What, mm. Which is sort of true, but it wasn't when it was clerical, right, when it was part of the liturgy, it was not a big topsy-turvy thing. The point of the boy bishop wasn't a parody of the hierarchy. It was a celebration of Christ, (laughs) right? As the boy king, the boy, you know, sort of... Because he's a baby. But he's also the king. Yes. Yeah. Is this remaining... Um, topsy turvydom. Why? Why the tradition that you, if you find the baby, you get to be the king for the day or something? Sort of. Um. Yeah. Except, like I said, it it didn't originate really as topsy turvydom. It's topsy turvydom, mm-hmm. of course, in the sense that you are honoring the the boy. So that's topsy turvy, right. just kind of automatically, because he's a boy who is the most powerful. You know. Yeah. But in reality, of course, the the point of honoring him is because of the idea of the fool, the humble, the lowly, right? So mm-hmm. you are supposed to, um, you know, elevate the lowly and the humble and recognize in, you know, the most lowly, right, Christ is also there, right? Um, and so you recognize, like, in the innocence of a child, that's the real power. Right. So it is topsy turvy, but not really in a um, carnivalesque type of way. Right. It's topsy turvy more in a way that's supposed to remind us that, you know, we think we are powerful adults, but in fact, we should be more like lowly, innocent children. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. That's more the point. Um, so it's really a kind of um, tame, you know, Christian lesson here. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because the liturgical celebrations tended to be sort of, in this way, very formal. Um, so there is potentially a young boy bishop who's elected, but again, because he signifies the Christ child, it's all embedded in the liturgical hours. Um, 
there's very little evidence for these sort of rowdy things that happened actually for most of this period. Now, the interesting oh. thing is that as it starts to get shut down, right? Because there are all these fears somehow that it's getting too rowdy or too, maybe just sort of too non-liturgical, right? You start to get too much, too much black yeah, pudding. Yeah, you know, or just too many plays, too, too many donkeys, too many sure. <laughs> whatever. Um, you know, there's no like real cross-dressing in the church, um, but you know, you do have clerics playing like the female roles not necessarily in costume but just you know but of course they do that for everything that's considered okay it's not that but if right there is just sort of this fear that what if it gets out of hand what if so as there starts to be this kind of crackdown on feast of fools um celebrations you do start to get a bigger rise of all of this outside of the church right Mm -hmm. so kind of the um and the question really is, is this a resurgence of stuff that's been going on the whole time? From Kalins to, fe- to you know, Feast of the Circumcision, has this always been kind of out there and it sort of resurges? Or is this a new thing that as, you know, you can't go celebrate Feast of the Fools in church anymore because they're starting to crack down on it, that it starts to go back out into the streets? But now it's something new. Right. It's not necessarily tied to what came before. Um, this is an open question. But there are some interesting, um, little bit of interesting evidence here. So, uh, for example, late 14th century, um, Troy, <laughs> Troy, um, there is some... Yeah, there's a board game called that, and I don't know how to pronounce yes. it every time we look at um, it. There is a damaged, there is some damaged church property. Um, and it seems that um, the... There has been some of this, the stuff that the church has, <laughs> um, has maybe been loaned out, um, to kind of outside, um, groups, essentially, lay societies mm-hmm. that have been having some fun festivities on the Feast of the Circumcision, right? As part of the Feast of Fools. Mm-hmm. And that they have been breaking some of the church's stuff. <laughs> and that they have to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so in 1380, um, there's a payment for a new iron stem for one of the large leather candlesticks um, that um, Mary the Fool broke at the Feast of Fools. Um, and two years later, in 1382, the chapter pays to repair and regild the good cross, which was broken on the day of the Feast of Fools. Um, and so it seems, right, the sort of mention of, like, Mary the Fool suggests, this does suggest... Um, a man who is cross-dressing as this role. And it does mm-hmm. seem to suggest a kind of um, outside lay society that has been celebrating, apparently borrowing some of the church's stuff for their processions and mm-hmm. breaking some of it. Um, and in Lille, in 1301, um, you do get um, evidence of lay festivities there as well. Um, the chapter accounts of the of the collegiate church of saint peter records a payment um on the saturday after christmas for a gift of wine to the bishop of fools Mm -hmm. um and then a smaller sum in 1306 is presented to the bishop of innocence so it seems like there were two seasonal bishops in lille um a boy bishop who's attached to the feast of innocence right that goes with the slaughter of innocence and an adult bishop of fools attached to the feast of fools which would have been on epiphany um 
So you start to see how some of the things that had been done in the church as part of the clerical celebration that presumably sort of lay people could attend, some of it, obviously, um, but as part, it used to be part of the liturgy, there would be a sort of a boy bishop elect as part of the liturgy, that as that starts to stop in the church, or even maybe sort of simultaneously, people decide what the church is doing isn't quite fun enough, you know, it, it goes back out into mm-hmm. the streets. Um, so you do have this sort of interesting way in which... Um, it does sort of resurrect <laughs> in this way. Um, and the, you know, there are youth companies that then, um, like in Lille, that specifically get sort of named as, as masking and painting their faces and stuff. Um, Amiens, there's um, evidence similarly of sort of youth groups um, that, you know, are doing this outside of the church. Uh, the University of Paris, um, the masters and scholars appoint certain bishops from among themselves, right? And then have processions. That's in 1367. Um, and they're sort of, you know, so there, there is the sort of rise then of all of this happening again outside. Um, mm-hmm. England, it should be pointed out, even though this is mostly in France, England does have a lot of this going on, not to the same extent ever clerically, and maybe not to the same extent ever in the streets. But because England, of course, is so tied to France, what the French do, the English ultimately, because they're also French, some of them end up doing. (laughs) So it it absolutely does happen in England as well. Um, But it's not clear, even as it goes back out into the streets, it's not clear that it was ever, at least traditionally in the Middle Ages, the sort of huge, rowdy thing it's really portrayed as like modern day carnival, you know, like you get mm-hmm. for carnival, right? For Mardi Gras, which of course is a different season. Um, and it's not clear that that was ever really fully true. Um, you mm-hmm. do get these weird things. You get a lot of fun stuff like the Herod games, right? You do get some fun things like in Beauvais, the donkey. Um, you absolutely do get the Calens festivities that become the feast of the circumcision festivities, right? Um, but then the Feast of Fools itself, even though it is certainly on the Feast of Circumcision, it seems to be a sort of clerical alternative in some ways, or at least an answer to what's going on in the Feast of Fools. You do get the boy bishops and things, but really in a way that's very sort of proper, right? Mm-hmm. And on on message for the season. Um, and then it goes back out into the streets eventually as the clerical stuff starts to get shut down. Um but even then, it's not clear that when it goes back out into the streets that it's horrifically rowdy. I mean, it's rowdy again, but not maybe horribly or anything. And it's not clear also at that point if that is tied in any way to the previous Feast of Circumcision, Kalen's revelries, or if it's new. Um, so that is an open question, actually. Uh, does the Kalen stuff just continue and re-embrace Feast of the Fools when that leaves the church? When Feast of Fools eventually leads the church, is that new? Is it separate from anything that's come before, like Callens or Feast of Circumcision celebrations? We don't really know, is the answer. But Feast of Fools itself was never sort of the huge, weird, carnival thing that a lot of people thought of it as, sadly. But there was some weird yeah. stuff that happened. I mean, mm. we should talk more about Herod yeah. and stuff, like, like as a society. Like, he should be more... <laughs> he should be better recognized as like a fun, you know, without him, we probably wouldn't have like Shakespeare's Richard the third or, you know, so good times really. Yeah. You know, or even okay. maybe Claudius, well, honestly, I think, stuff like that. 
Yeah. Well, he was a pretty cool guy. Um, and this is not the moment to go into my favorite Roman emperors. Right. But, okay. <laughs> I think we yes. can say for sure that we've learned that human beings have a powerful urge to blow off work at the end of December and the beginning of January. Yes. And eat and drink a lot and party, Yep, basically. And we still do it. Have some sort of party. But now we call it Christmas yes. and New Year's. And then sadly, unlike, right, we don't have Epiphany. Um, we don't do no. Twelfth Night. So after New Year's, we don't get anything until like Valentine's Day, which is just ridiculous because mm -hmm. that's like a whole month and a half of winter. You know, yeah. like there's MLK Day, but that's not a celebration exactly. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's, you know, it's a commemoration. But, um, and then, geez, I mean, you know, February famously, yeah, except for like, Valentine's Day, like there's, there's nothing. Solstice, but well, yeah, there's like spring break on the major yeah. calendar. Yeah. So the secular year isn't as well planned. I have to say. <laughs> All right. Yep. Uh, so enjoy this uh, holiday that you didn't even know you were celebrating. Yay! Because it's your last chance for a while to really get some good debauchery yes. in. Um, Remember, you can go all the way to Epiphany. So that's the 6th of January. Get a whole week. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, keep Yay. going. Um, this is what you trained yes. for. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, well, I think we're going to call it there. Thank you for talking to me, and thank you to everyone who's listening. If you enjoyed our show, you can rate and review us. You could tell a friend. Um, check out our website and our Facebook, which are both sort of Ask a Medievalist. Just Google it. You know how Google, how Google works. You're, you know. Um, I think that's it. I don't think we have any more announcements. So, yeah. Uh, enjoy your enjoy your New Year's and your feasting with fools or as a fool for fools on behalf of fools and keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 